Actors Talk Podcast, Episode 40. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining me on Actors Talk. My name is Tommy G. Kendrick. I am the producer and host of our digital get-together. And before I go any farther, I want to thank the folks at Audible because they are our sponsor for this episode of Actors Talk. Go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash Actors Talk. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash Actors Talk for your free audiobook download. Uh, thanks for joining me for episode 40 of Actors Talk. Uh, in case you don't know, maybe this is your first time here. Uh, I am Tommy G. Kendrick. I'm an actor based out of the Austin, Texas area. Oh, I lived in Hollywood from mm, 1978 to 1994, I think it was. And I've been here in Austin ever since. This is a great filmmaking community. It's a great community of writers and actors, and I love living here. I especially love it living here more now that uh, the legislature this year did a great job of significantly improving our film incentive, and so we're getting more production already here uh, coming back to Texas, and we love that. The show Revolution is shooting here in Austin, 22 episodes I believe they're doing. So we, um, we're we really excited about that and for other productions coming to Texas. Thank you very much. There's a podcaster named David Jackson who teaches podcasters how to podcast, and he does a feature on his show where people call in and they say, because of my podcast, this happens or that happens. Well, I would, if I were calling Dave's show, I would call in and say, because of podcasting, I get to talk to people like John Badham, film director John Badham, television director John Badham, the director of some really, really successful films from the mid-70s through the late 90s. Especially, we know John Badham for Saturday Night Fever, which was only his second film, and to direct in only your second film, or at all, actually, one of the highest grossing movies in Hollywood history, a film that uh, helps define an era, really, that made a huge star out of John Travolta that uh, indelibly ingrained the music of the Bee Gees in with our film-going experience. Just so many things involved with Saturday Night Fever. John Badham directed that film, and it holds up today just as well as it did in 1977. If you go back and look at it, it's really startling. The performances are real and true. The script is gritty and raw and urban, and it works today just like it worked then. It's a very, very fine film. But that's not the only film that John Badham directed. He directed uh, the great Frank Langella in Dracula. He directed Richard Dreyfuss in Whose Life Is It Anyway? and also in Stakeout and in Another Stakeout. He directed the great Roy Scheider. God, I loved Roy Scheider. In Blue Thunder, 
He directed Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy in War Games. What a uh, God! I remember being in the theater watching War Games and and how um, technologically advanced it seemed then. Now it's it the technology of that film is certainly dated because it came out in 1983 and computers have changed a bit since 1983, but thematically it remains very very on point. The, one of the first films, maybe the first film, I'm not sure about that, for Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy, who both give terrific performances. And we get into a discussion to some degree of war games and how it is that a director comes in and replaces another director and what the challenges are, because that was the case with John Batham and War Games. We'll get into that in the interview. Well, that's enough. What we're going to talk about, we'll be starting our discussion with John Batham, or I will be, it's just me here. I will be starting my discussion with John Batham about his new book, John Batham on directing notes from the set of Saturday Night Fever, War Games, and more. So enough rambling for me. Let's get to that interview with a terrific film and television director and a, and a really nice guy. Boy, I love talking to him. John Batham. Here we go. One of the things we want to make sure that we talk about is your new book, John Batham on directing notes from the set of Saturday Night Fever, War Games and more. Has that been released yet or is it just about to be released? I believe if you look on Amazon, it's there listed now as a, as a book available for purchase and, and it should be in the stores within the next week or so. I want to talk about the book in a minute, but if you don't mind, I'd like to go back in time just a little bit. You grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, is that right? That's right. I was born in, in England and my mother remarried when I was about uh, five and my stepfather moved us to Birmingham. And he was in the military, is that? He was an American Air Force general. They met in England uh, during the war. Now, your mom, from what I read, was an actress. Was that on an amateur basis or was she a professional actress at some point? By the time we moved here because of the war, she had not begun professionally acting. And then as we moved to Birmingham, she continued her acting locally, but took up broadcasting and had a, a radio show for about 15, 20 years oh, wow. and a television show for about, about 10 years on WBRC in Birmingham. Ah, okay. Is it from your mother then that you think you got the creative genes? Well, I don't know about creative genes, but I probably <laughs> got uh, I got something from her. One thing I didn't know that I, that I did want to mention, and a, a lot of people already were way ahead of me on this, but I did not realize that your sister Mary played the role of Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird, one of my favorite films of all time. That's that's pretty cool. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes. I mean, it was a, a great a great treat for us. And we were certainly excited about it. Now, you were already off at school, were you not, when this occurred with uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? That's right. I was, I was definitely at school on scholarship at the Yale Drama School. And as graduate students are with, with little money, and, and my mother calls to say, your sister's in a movie with Gregory Peck. <laughs> and, you know, get my razor blade quick. Yeah, no kidding. When you went to Yale Drama School, did you already have designs on a career in film or television? Or did you think you would be going there to, to further a career on the stage, stage directing? 
I think I was probably thinking about theater. That you know seemed to be my my goal at the at the time. Right. And and yet one of my my best friends at school, Peter Hunt, was from California, and he kept talking about film and watching television being made. And I began to be more and more fascinated by it. And I got more interested in film while I was at Yale, seeing a lot of films that I'd never seen before. So by the time I got out of school, I thought, well, I should go to California and and look and see what's going on out there. I did, and I never left. How long did it take you to get a directing agent when you got to California? And how did you go about that? Well, uh, the only job I could get when I got to California after four months of very hard looking was in the mailroom at Universal. I, I couldn't even get a job as a page at NBC because I was too tall for their uniforms. And I think I only got a, a job at Universal because of Gregory Peck, who my sister had introduced me to. And he put in a put in a word and and suddenly I think I bumped up to the top of the list so when one day when somebody quit uh, you know they went to the top of the list oh get this guy in here to deliver mail well how did you make it from there to the set as a director you started out directing television I believe you have to bear with me through let's say about six years <laughs> of being a casting director, being an associate producer, you know, various jobs, working my way up the ladder until my boss, William Sackheim, said, here, I need this little presentation for a series done. You you do this. So I did. And then he said, well, I'm doing this series with Hal Holbrook. Uh, you, you can do one of these. So that was, you know, a huge, huge break for me. Right. Well, that's, that's interesting. You, you say you were in casting for a while. That's uh, that kind of is an interesting thing that probably informed some of your ability to work with actors as a director or did it? How did, how did that well, work work in? I, I think that it, it probably came from, you know, my ability to work with actors. I'd had a lot of experience um, working with actors before at yeah. the Yale drama school. And so I think that helped my ability as a casting director to, be recognizing talent and to be able to work with the talent before I was submitting them for roles. Right. And, and I was actually able to be working with directors and producers as we were casting. And I started learning a lot from directors like Michael Ritchie, who, you know, helped bring me along and let me ask dumb questions and watch them on the set directing so that by the time uh, Bill Sackheim let me direct this little presentation. I felt like I, I knew enough to direct that. Well, you directed quite a few television or episodic television shows in the, I guess, the early 70s. That's right. Before you made it into feature films. How did you get the job on Bingo Long, Traveling All-Stars, and Motor Kings? I had been doing a lot of movies for television by that point, and one that won about, I believe, about five Emmys that year, and I was nominated for one of them. It won for the best television dramatic program of the year, was also produced by William Sackheim, and it was called The Law, introducing an unheard of actor named Judd Hirsch. And it 
got me a tremendous amount of attention, including from George Roy Hill, who was consulting on the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars. And the producer, Rob Cohen, was an executive at Motown for their film division. He was the head of their film division, and I had known him from 20th Century Fox and interviewed with him. So so they came to me because the other directors they had were too expensive in what they the way they wanted to do the the film and and this was going to be a relatively low budget film so when i was asked to do it i had read a lot of movie scripts but not found anything that i liked but this was just so such a powerful story and i understood from growing up in birmingham about negro leagues and and birmingham black barons uh, played i'd seen them play in birmingham you know i understood a great deal about it and i love baseball so all of those factors you know, it worked in my favor. Well, it's an interesting thing, and I believe it. It's it probably in your previous book. I'll be in my trailer: the creative wars between directors and actors. I think it's in that book actually. Which actors get that book? It's not only for directors. That is a great book for actors, as is John Batham on directing. That book is called "I'll Be in My Trailer." The creative wars between directors and actors. But I believe there's a story you tell in there about an incident that happened with Richard Pryor on uh, Bingo Long. And maybe you could relate that incident and how you would handle things differently as an experienced director as compared to how you handled it as a director on his first feature. Well, one of the things that's very common with young directors is kind of standing your ground when people are trying to tell you what they think ought to be done. And, and, it's very common for young directors to get extremely defensive. Uh, And so uh, when Richard and I went to have a a conversation about something that we disagreed about, um, I, I was, you know, I stood right up to him and was very defensive. Well, I wouldn't do that today. I would know to listen to him uh, the way I listen to my daughter when she comes to me and, you know, and tells me that her teacher is terrible or she feels awful. And, and instead of disagreeing with her, I'd say, well, tell me more about it. And what do you think? And so I, I got a little bit sarcastic with Richard, which, which definitely angered him. And, you know, he almost left the, left the movie. But my producer, Rob Cohen, was smart enough to get him to come back and Richard and I made up. Today, I would never use sarcasm as a, as a tool. I banished it from my vocabulary. And that's what I try to teach my students now, right. that you have, to, you have to treat people as adults and not play like you're in high school. The first third of your new book, John Batam on Directing, is really sort of a carryover or continuation, maybe, in, in my terms at least, of your previous book, I'll Be In My Trailer, because it, it deals extensively with the relationship between directors and actors and and things to do and things not to do. And one of the one of the biggest words that uh, jumps out at me from the first part of this new book is the word trust and how it's so vital that an actor trusts the director and vice versa. What are some of the common mistakes that younger directors make in terms of not getting the actor to trust them? And what can they do to make that a better situation? Many directors, young and young, old and more and experienced, seem to think of their actors as pieces of machinery, expensive pieces of machinery that you order up. Just like you order your cameras and your lights and your sound equipment, you say, well, I need 
you know, one of this. And you order them up and you expect them to show up on the day of shooting and, and behave just like your camera would in working order. Well, you can't do that. You're dealing with human beings. And you need to bond with these people who are, first of all, probably nervous about coming to work with people they don't know, with directors they don't know. They are nervous about exposing themselves. Your camera isn't nervous about exposing itself. It exposes all day long. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, things as simple as literally calling the actor up after you've cast them and saying, boy, I'm really glad you're with us, and uh, what can I do for you? Can I help you? Uh, is there anything you need, uh, anything you're worried about? A simple 20-second phone call will work miracles, but I show up on the set at 6 in the morning and catch them in the makeup trailer and say, and how are you doing today, and what do you feel? Just simple bonding with them that way. And as I said with Richard Pryor, if they come to me and say, you know, I'm I'm a little concerned about the opening of this scene or this piece of dialogue or this wardrobe or my shoes, I right away stop everything I'm doing and I'm say, well, tell me more. What 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 do you you know what are you thinking? Just go ahead and expand on it. Just these simple simple little things create a great deal of trust that the actor thinks I can raise problems with this guy. This guy is going to listen to me, is not going to make fun of me. Oh, yeah, your shoes don't fit, right? Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing like that. And why do we care about the trust? We care because a trusting person is going to give you more of their creativity. A, a person who doesn't trust you is going to say, I'll just give him what I know is safe. Right. I'll give him my same old old man character or my same old... Marilyn Monroe look alike, but I'm not going to expand myself because, well, you know, I don't know if he's going to make fun of me if I do that. So I'll, I'll just go with what I did in the audition. And, and that's not good. You want creative people. The actors are our creative partners and we need to get them in the spirit. So it's not what actors must do uh, for us. It's what we must do for actors, to paraphrase uh, a certain great ex-president. In my situation that I've observed over a number of years, the directing I've gotten in supporting in smaller roles has mostly been, if the director didn't say anything, it must be okay. Because well, because they only said something, you know, if they wanted if they wanted an alteration. And so right. and so, you know, that was very unlike for young actors coming into the business, you know, to expect the director to uh, converse with you. They first of all, they just don't have time for that, especially for smaller parts and on an episodic show where they're they're well, moving. You, right. You know, you know, Tommy, I, I I I do disagree with that because, first of all, you're right that they don't say anything, but I don't agree that they don't have time. Okay. And Sidney Lumet, in his book, Making Movies, said something really interesting. He said, I talk to every actor after every take. And I thought, well, how is that possible? How could you do that? Uh, the, you know, we don't have time for that. And, and so I'm on a television show right after I read that. And I said, well, let me try it. Sidney Lumet, after all, it's not chopped liver. So the take ends and I... I jump out on the set a few a few feet away and I go over and I just say that was that was very good good and I go to the next person and I just pat them on the shoulder and I go to the next person and say well maybe uh you could try to try a little harder this time to persuade the the other person suddenly I've talked to all the actors in maybe about 20 seconds 
which is when when the cameraman is adjusting a light, the makeup person is fixing something, the hair person is doing something else, and all I had to do was run in there. Now the actor isn't standing there saying, I wonder if I was any good. I wonder if we're doing this again because I sucked. Right. Uh, and he's just hoping I'll get better. All the things that run through your mind as an actor, you know you've done it, and you're you're just wondering, what the heck are we doing this for? Well, and the and natural inclination is for the actor to think it's their fault somehow that has to be done again. <laughs> yeah, of course. that's why that's why we're doing it again because that actor screwed up and 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 you as an actor, you know, think it's you. It's just in our nature. And and so just uh, the slightest bit of uh, encouragement, just like if you go to an exercise class and the teacher comes by and touches you on the shoulder, you know, you're doing the right thing and uh, you need that little bit of encouragement. And and it really helps tremendously for the, the actor's morale. It really does. And it and as you say, it can be something as simple as a touch on the shoulder or, or a look in the eye and a sort of a thumbs up visually or, or whatever. And, you know, that's that's really all it takes. And the actor gets to relax a little more then and know they're on the right track. And, um, you know, it just makes it more fun. Then you can start to have fun if you're getting some kind of feedback like that. Absolutely. And it's something that, that I, I recommend. I know it works. And friends of mine that do it, they they know that it works. My good, my good director friends like Michael Zinberg and so on have all learned that's, that's the way to go for it. Just a reminder, I'm speaking with film and television director John Batham, and we're talking about his book, John Batham on Directing. What a fortuitous event that this episode of Actors Talk is sponsored by the great folks at Audible. If you go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash Actors Talk, sign up for their service, you get a free audiobook download. I am very happy to say that this book, John Batham on Directing, Notes from the Set of Saturday Night Fever, War Games, and more, is available at Audible. Audiblepodcast.com forward slash Actors Talk. You just go there, use that link because that helps out the podcast. Audiblepodcast.com forward slash Actors Talk. You sign up for the service, you get your free book download. I highly recommend that you make that free book download this book by John Batham. But maybe you already have the book or you want to get a hard copy and dog ear it and underline it and all that. I get it. It's that kind of book. Well, you might like 12 Years a Slave. That is a wonderful book that is the basis for a highly anticipated film that's coming out later this year, 12 Years a Slave. That is narrated by Louis Gossett Jr. There's also a great book called Final Cuts, The Last Films of 50 Great Directors. What happened to Billy Wilder that he couldn't get a job directing a film during the last 20-something years of his life? This is the man that wrote and directed films like Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Irma LaDuce, Stalag 17, Lost Weekend, Double Indemnity, and he couldn't get a job directing a film for over 20 years before he passed away. That's what this book looks at, the last films of 50 great directors. I want to call your attention to One Less Bitter Actor, written and narrated by Marcus Flanagan. Marcus has been a guest on Actors Talk. I recommend this book every chance I get, especially to beginning actors. One Less Bitter Actor is a book that has got to be in the library, whether it's hard copy or the audio library of 
every actor, especially every beginning actor. One Less Bitter Actor, written and narrated by Marcus Flanagan. All of those books and 150,000 more are available if you go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash actors talk. Audiblepodcast.com forward slash actors talk. That helps you out. You get the free download and the podcast gets a little bit of help as well to keep delivering to you absolutely free content. Audiblepodcast.com forward slash actors talk. Now let's get back to my interview with the terrific John Batham about his book, John Batham on Directing. How did you come upon this style that you used in the first book and that you've continued through where you discuss a topic for a bit and then you have so many great professionals who have contributed to both these books who will relate uh, an anecdote or a story or a point of view that either agrees or maybe in some cases disagrees with what you're discussing? How did you come upon that style? I realized that I probably know only a few answers that I can rely on. And I thought I should go out and interview any director that would sit down and talk to me, any director that I respected and trusted. So when I could get Sidney Pollack or Mark Rydell or Steven Soderbergh to sit down with me, and we would just talk about how do they work with actors. Later, I would go back and pull their interviews apart. So I would separate things they said into different topics And then if I'm writing about rehearsal, I could just go and say, well, what did Steven Soderbergh say about rehearsal? And what does Sidney Pollack say about it? And I would find very differing points of view that they feel quite... I was surprised that Sidney Pollack's view on rehearsal was quite different from mine, even though Sidney taught at the Sandy Meisner School for many years Mm -hmm. and is one of our great uh, actor directors. Of, of all time, just like Lamette. And I said, there's clearly not one point of view on how to rehearse because that's just uh, arrogant. And we need to look at all these points of view and say, what works for the situation we're in? And which, which kind of approach works because every actor is completely different. Every actor's process is different. It's not like we're all trained in the same school like the Pillsbury Baking School or something. Everybody comes from very different backgrounds and we need different techniques. You've directed a lot of television and a lot of feature films. What are some of the differences or different skills that you need to develop when doing a television show, maybe as compared to a feature? The biggest difference between the two is how much control and authority do you have as a director? In a movie, classically, as we know, the the director has a great deal of say-so. Once you get past the casting, which is usually the producer has huge say-so, and up to the point of you know, getting a final cut out of it. But in television, the you're not in charge. The, the producer, who is also the creator of the series, who has their life and, and creativity tied up in this, and you're just the guy coming along to do this week's show. So your job is going to be to try to, first of all, to try to match the style, because that's what he's bringing you in. He's not bringing you in to reinvent the wheel. He'd like you to bring in and reinvent or give him the same wheel but maybe the chrome can be a little shinier, or maybe you add a spoke in the wheel. You're dolling up, to use the automobile analogy, you're taking his Chevrolet and, and making a, a little fancier model for the new year. It's the same Chevrolet, but you've, you maybe add your own creativity to it. But it's you're in a much more limited uh, environment. So a lot of the 
ego that you might have had as a feature director, you've got to lay that aside because you're not going to get very far in television episodic. And, and you know what? That's where all the work is today. The number of features coming out is very limited, and yet the number of television shows outweighs that by a huge percentage. So that's very likely where you could spend a lot of your career working. So you better learn how to kind of fit in and at the same time try to be creatively contributive. That's a hard thing to straddle. It, we'd all like to be Steven Spielberg and control everything that we do, but there's only a few of those guys around. You know, casting has changed so much, uh, certainly since I started around 1978. That's when I joined the Guild and keeps changing because of digital technology. The the conventional wisdom that actors get is that if you're in the audition and you're on a callback or the director's in the room and he gives you direction, well, he just wants to see if you can take direction. But you go into quite a bit more depth of what uh, directors can use the audition situation for in terms of rehearsing and working on material, don't you? Yes, because uh, when you're when you're sitting there and personally interviewing the actor, you begin to learn pretty quickly how to help shape the scene. The actor comes in with a certain idea from reading the sides that they're given, and you can you can say, well, what if you did this, and what if you tried this, so that you're actually experimenting a little bit with, with an actor who's in there very eagerly wanting to help and participate and loving the feedback, loving to have some kind of a help, and, and if you ask them to stand on their heads and do it that way, they'll, they'll certainly give it their go, give it a go. And if it doesn't work, you can say, well, that was not a good idea, not your fault. I just had this crazy idea. And by the time you've cast the role, you have learned so much more about what works and what doesn't work. And, and if you're only viewing people on tape, you're getting people who don't have the benefit of any creative feedback from the director. They're doing the best they can from a casting director who's probably harried and hasn't had time to, you know, refine the role. When you're cast or when you're directing episodic television now in this kind of environment that, that we're talking about, where casting is fast, it may be long distance, uh, that kind of thing. When the director comes on, let's let's say you've been hired to do an episode of of Longmire or something in, mm-hmm. in, in New mm-hmm. Mexico. Is that cast completely set by the time you get to Albuquerque to, to to begin work, or is there still some casting to be going on that the director can have some influence over? Well, of course, your regular cast has been sure long since picked for you, but because you're arriving right around the time they're just getting to casting your episode, you can get into the mix and should get into the mix right away. In this day of email and instant video over the internet, those auditions will start flying back and forth between different executives and producers. And you better sure as heck jump in there and get your word in because almost always they're going to pick somebody that isn't quite who you'd like. Right. So you got to get in there and fight for your person. Um, the first episode of, of Nikita that I did last year was a, a young 12-year-old girl was the lead. And they were right on the verge of picking somebody who was dead wrong for it. Wow. And, and I saw 
one audition that somebody just like you had uh, heard about the role and sent their own audition in on tape. And I said, wow, this girl is really good. So I got on the phone with the producer and said, please look at so-and-so again. And he looks at her and he goes, oh, yeah, Annalisa. Yes, she's very good. I then ironically find out that Annalisa, the girl that we cast, had just played the lead in a movie about a 12-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy who escaped from summer camp that was directed by one of my close colleagues, DJ Caruso. And so I called DJ up and I now know a lot about this girl. She does the role. But I just had to aggressively get in there and make myself part of it or the train would have left the station without me. Talk a bit, if you can, about your experience on War Games, because this was in a situation where you had to replace Martin Brest. For whatever reason, they wanted to make a change, and you were brought in about two weeks into the movie. What are the landmines that you have to be aware of, and what is it that you can do immediately to, to gain the trust of the actors and the crew? Well, I know that Marty was on it for a long time before, many, many months, and very heavily involved in, in preparing the movie. And I know for a fact that he prepared it brilliantly. And it's a shame that he got into a, a conflict with the producers that I never got all the story on, that they felt it necessary to make to make a change. But when I, when I read the script, I said, this is a fabulously funny and interesting story that is also kind of an anti-war piece. There's so much good about it. And in the theater tradition where I used to watch Mike Nichols or Jerome Robbins come up from New York to replace a director in New Haven on a show bound for Broadway, I believe in, in that, that sometimes it's necessary to make a change. So I go in and now I've got to convince a whole crew plus Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy that I'm going to, you know, lead them down a good path and get their confidence. Their big break in movies was quickly coming to an end and I had to, you know, get their trust. And I had one of the world's greatest cameramen, William Fraker. So that was, that was pretty easy with him. He and I could get along real fast. It was with, with Matthew and Ali that uh, that I, I realized that, that what, they, what they needed to do was they needed to be having more fun with the material. They were taking it very seriously and were very dark, and yet what they were doing in the story was really a lot of fun. If, if I could get, have gotten on a computer when I was 15 and be able to change a girl's grades... Mm -hmm. On the school computer, I would be peeing in my pants. <laughs> I would be so excited. Indeed. And yet what was happening in the few scenes that I saw was that they were treating it like they were stealing secrets from the NSA, you know, like Anthony Snowden or something. And so I was encouraging them to loosen up and loosen up. And the first take we did, I think we went 14 takes which I never do. For me to go past three takes is a lot. And, and yet I kept running in and telling them jokes, tickling them, you know, having fun. At one point I said, you know, you guys are coming in here like you've just been sitting in a chair waiting for us to call roll. We're running around the stage here. We're going to go around the block. And the, and the last person who gets back in the stage has to sing a song for the crew. So they ran with me around the stage. Well, of course, I had like 25 years older on them, 
And I'm the last guy back on the stage, which I knew I would be. And, and I sang the silliest song I could sing, which was uh, something from my old Glee Club days, The Happy Wanderer. You know, Valderie, <laughs> Valdera, ha, 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 ha. Well, you know, that kind of stuff lightened them up yeah. and lightened the whole process up. And they started to laugh and have fun. And, and the, the takes, you know, suddenly became delightful and great fun. And they got into that spirit. And we, we had bonded quite a bit by then. We're pretty much out of time. And I've held you past the 30 minutes I asked for. Appreciate your patience. To let the audience know a little bit more about the book, your publisher is... Is Michael Weesey. Uh, productions, W-I-E-S-E, and uh, they publish a huge catalog of film-related books. If you want to know anything about cinematography, editing, screenwriting, directing, Michael Weesey will have a book on that subject that's probably pretty doggone good. Yeah, I've bought a lot of books from them through the years, and I asked you that really selfishly because I wasn't sure how to pronounce the name. Besides uh, working with actors, the second part of the book is action and suspense. The third part is going to be especially helpful, I think, to younger directors, or probably any director, actually, and it's called Preparing the Scene, the Director's Checklist. Is that section on the director's checklist and there's a lot of material there folks so you really want to to go through that is that director's checklist just something that you developed over the years or did you sit down and and codify it for this book i think the latter is correct i codified because the ideas come not only from stanislavski lee strasberg elia kazan the great directors yeah how they approach their material but also my colleagues teachers fellow professors at, at chapman and nyu and things that they've discovered over the years about questions questions that you need to ask of any scene in order to kind of understand where the where the dramatic conflict is where the meat is and what what will inspire your actors to do the best thing and sometimes when you get lost you can ask almost any one of these 12 or 13 questions to kind of spur your brain as to why the scene's not working and how we can make it better and actors i'd say for for the actors listening this is great material for actors as well because breaking down scenes is certainly something something that actors do as well. And this is another take at it. And I, I'd really recommend it. Both of these books, John Batam on directing and I'll be in my trailer are, are just fun reads. They're, they're not heavy textbooky kind of material, but they're very, very informative and they're a lot of fun to read, and I really recommend them for actors and directors, certainly of all levels. And if you're just a film fan, you, you're really going to like I'll Be In My Trailer because there are a lot of anecdotes in there about directors dealing with actors, but this in this book as well. They're both terrific books. I've been talking to John Batham, who is the director of some of my favorite films from certainly from the 70s through the 90s, uh, Bingo Long, Saturday Night Fever, we haven't even gotten to talk about, and what a what an iconic film that is. Uh, Dracula, Whose Life Is It Anyway, Blue Thunder, War Games, etc. Mr. John Badham, thank you so much for being my guest on Actors Talk Podcast. Well, Tommy, thank you. It's been a lot of fun to talk with you, and especially because you have such knowledge as an actor yourself. You know, you, you really get it. Thank you so much, Mr. John Batham. Man, I'm, I'm not saying anything else. I get a compliment like that from someone of the note of John Batham. I'm shutting up and moving on. Thank you so much. John Batham, 
Terrific book, John Badamon directing. Also, be sure you check out I'll Be In My Trailer, The Creative Wars Between Directors and Actors. Good gracious, I like that book a lot. I like them both. They're both excellent books. Well, you can see, I think it's easy to see why John Badham is known as an actor's director. He is easy to talk to. You can tell that he cares about people. He, even after a number of years in the business, you can hear the enthusiasm and the passion that he still has for directing films and working with actors and other directors. It comes through loud and clear. And it comes through in his book, in both books, very, very well. John Badham on directing notes from the set of Saturday Night Fever, War Games, and More. Thank you so much. Folks, that's going to be it. I'm going off to do a little bit of work this coming week on a web series. I'll hope to be able to tell you more about that uh, later. I don't really want to talk about it till it's done. Lord knows I, I've, uh, if I had actually done every job that I thought I was going to be doing over the past 30-something years, my resume would be three times as long as it is. So when it actually gets done, which it looks like it is this next week, I'll let you know about it. Until then, I uh, hope to see you in the movies. God bless you all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for helping me make Actors Talk a joyous experience and a, a wonderful thing to me for me to be involved in. I really enjoy doing it and hope you enjoy the content. Please let me hear from you. Go to ActorsTalkPodcast.com and leave me a voicemail. There are ways there that you can shoot me a voicemail, if not an email, to Tommy at ActorsTalkPodcast.com. Let me hear from you. I really would like to know what you think about the content. Well, that's it. God bless you. Hope to see you in the movies. Until next time, this is Tommy G. Kendrick saying so long. Episode 40 is a wrap.